My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. He started investing, I'm going to say 25 to 30 years ago, and he had some primo real estate, like enviable real estate in in that portfolio uh, that anyone would love to own. But it just surprised me because some of those um, properties were bought, you know, 20 plus years ago for a, for a song, like really just for a bargain. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyne Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Amazon best-selling author, chartered accountant and founder of the Freedom Warrior program, Selena Kilkani. In this episode, we dive into how the size of your portfolio, even if it's worth $10 million and consists of 12 or more properties, doesn't necessarily add up to an early retirement. Kilkani has worked with a lot of investors over 12 years in business, including those with multi-million dollar property portfolios. While it appears to outsiders that these portfolio owners have everything they could ever need and more, sometimes things aren't quite as simple on the inside. It's a really interesting topic and certainly one that's very dear to my heart. I think um, the, the sorts of people that I talk to are people who have definitely tried to follow the guidelines of the Property Investing Playbook 101. Um, They've tried to, you know, they've exhibited delayed gratification. They've gone out there and accumulated as many properties as they can. They've, you know, hustled to get good lending opportunities. But the problem that they face is even as their portfolio starts to grow and their net worth goes up, they're still finding themselves in a situation where, and it's, kind of the, the problem that we have here in our market, that the income and rentals just aren't keeping up with property prices. And so they find themselves in a situation where net, net income is just really, really poor or if not negative. I guess my question is, is why do you think that's been the case in the Australian property market? And perhaps we could sort of talk about an example because I'm, I'm trying to put this in context as well. But why, why do you think rentals haven't kept up with, say, for example, the, the appreciation of property? It's probably a a very complex answer. I mean, everyone with the benefit of hindsight probably wishes they bought more properties 20 years ago. But, you know, I think there's probably a few factors in play. I think, you know, people can only pay so much rent. Incomes are finite and already as a percentage of everyone's average median income, you know, renting makes up a, a good proportion of that. 
So if wages don't keep pace with the rising price of property, then, you know, they're going to tap out pretty soon. And I think that's what's happened in Australia. On the flip side, you know, when I compare especially to other countries, Australia has a voracious appetite for wealth building and particularly property. So, you know, you would have heard me say every man and their dog in Australia seems to uh, have an opinion on property and, and fancy themselves as, you know, pretty well versed in, in property. And, you know, as with anything that's based on supply and demand, I think, you know, the price of real estate has, you know, gone up in, in leaps at different points for different reasons. So there was definitely a period during, say, for example, the um, the mining boom where, you know, that drove up a lot of real estate. We had a period of time where a lot of foreign investors were coming to Australia because they perceived it to be safe. So, again, mm-hmm. that sort of put a squeeze on demand and pushed up prices. Um, and now we're kind of in a situation where there are a lot of hungry investors looking to property as a way of, you know, either building a bit more of a nest egg in retirement or trying to uh, reduce the timeline to get to retirement. So they're probably the two motivators. But, yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily a straightforward answer as to why everything's gotten out of whack. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, I, I would say it's it's probably cultural as well as, you know, some limiting factors around how much we can actually spend on rents. Let's take a look at an example then uh, of of potentially maybe one of the case studies that you've had where we could look and and potentially look at the numbers to understand the differences because say someone has a multi-million dollar property portfolio and I guess I'll I'll let you share this case study. How much income would they be potentially generating from, you know, as an example? I think there's a a real myth going around that if you hit a certain net worth, meaning the amount of real estate you own relative to debt, that that will solve the financial freedom problem. But I, I just talk to dozens and dozens of investors every month who tell me that they have the multi-million dollar property portfolio, but they feel like they're just, you know, they, they still feel like they're mild. They're no better off is how they feel. Rich on paper, poor in cash flow. And the, the case study that I'll mention is um, some one of my clients who, when they came to see me, had a property portfolio of, I'm going to say about 12 or 13 properties. Um, it was definitely um, valued in excess of $10 million. And the experience that he had and why he came to me was he kind of felt just that he was living under a rock. He had to earn considerable um, income just to support the portfolio before he even put food on the table. And from the outside, you would have picked this guy as uber successful. And if you described his balance sheet, you would go, holy cow, like that guy's rich. Um, But the truth of the matter is um, there were a couple of properties out of the portfolio that had unbelievable land tax attached to them. Um, Another couple of properties that had just amazing rates just because of where they were located close to a prominent beach and, you know, some underperforming rent. Like just everything about the whole portfolio was just a bit neglected and, you know, I think to some degree people tend to feel a bit powerless 
once they buy a property, there's like, okay, well, now I've just got to sit and wait and hope and pray that this thing goes up and, and looks after me. Um, and so, you know, the, the trap that sometimes you can fall into is just neglect and not really wanting to actually examine, you know, what have I got and does it make sense? Um, so, yeah, I, I think this guy was a good example because I, I, I really wanted him to understand that he had options um, and what that was going to require was him just actually looking at, at those options. For all intensive purposes, <laughs> sake, uh, we'll put a name to him. He's, this is not his real name, but we'll use, say, for example, maybe Ben as this, so we can refer to this person as Ben. And uh, I'll, I'll talk from, I guess, from what I'm sort of hearing from Ben's perspective. It sounds like as though Ben was literally working extremely hard just to, you know, keep the property portfolio and, and try and service it rather than actually this portfolio creating passive income for him to be able to live the life that he was sort of anticipating. How long do you think it took Ben to actually build this portfolio up to get to where he is today? Yeah, so he started investing, I'm going to say 25 to 30 years ago, and he had some primo real estate, like enviable real estate in that in that portfolio uh, that anyone would love to own. But it just surprised me because some of those um, properties were bought, you know, 20 plus years ago for, for a song, like really just for a bargain. But he was still crippled with the just the cost to run those properties, high maintenance, high rates, high land tax, um, really poorly structured. So there was a bunch of things sort of working against him. Gosh, and it kind of begs the question is really, is there really any option to continue on something like this? Because if you're in that kind of situation, like just like how Ben is where you've got multi-million dollars worth of property portfolio, is it really necessary or is it really worth while spending 25 years to build that up and then you're still sort of stuck in that position because all you're doing is really servicing it and, and I guess keeping it maintained. It's almost like the rich person. I'm thinking of somebody who's you know quite wealthy, has a lot of cash coming in like, like a movie Hollywood star. They bought beautiful properties, large mansions but they're hardly there and they're, they're spending so much money paying for servants and maids to look after that property instead of them actually enjoying it. It sounds like it's a little bit like that. There's some um, fantastic celebrity stories of lost people like uh, Nicolas Cage and the like who blew their fortunes on yeah, expensive properties. But um, yeah, look, you know, the, I think the question is like why, why bother if, if, it's, if you can't make it after 25 years, why bother? And I think the, the real reason that we go into property investing is because we, we want to use it as a vehicle to build capital. And I think if you go into it recognizing that that's what it's for, and there are tweaks you can make along the way to improve cash flow, and it just so happened that um, Ben in this case just hadn't done a great job of kind of watching the bottom line till, you know, he was well into his journey. Um, you know, he had a successful business, so this was kind of like a, a background interest. But I think if you, you know, I talk a lot about the three parts of the wealth creation journey and we've done a podcast on that as well. When you're in the first part of your journey, you have to build capital. And there are definitely ways that you can build capital that don't mean you put yourself under a rock like Ben did, um, where you can, you know, aim to be as cash flow neutral as possible as you go. And that that's certainly how I've done it because I have probably not had the luxury of a super high income to to sort of support it. But I think at some point 
well before people actually think they can, um, they've got options. So number one, and this is the option that everyone understands, is you sell down assets to fund your lifestyle. So one of the options that Ben had was sell up one property at a time. He had huge capital gains accumulated and then just live off that money. And, you know, that obviously for most property investors is not palatable because there's no legacy in that play and there's certainly no, um, you know, there's no guarantees around how long that money will last either. And, and on top of that to, to also mention is that you lose sort of like your golden goose because your golden goose is, is, is pretty much going to be the one, say, for example, having more capital growth in the future. So, if you sell that down at that point in time, you're missing out in future growth. And, and that's the biggest lesson I've seen happen with my, not only myself and my parents is because, you know, you think at that point in time, that's the right decision. It may have been because of personal circumstances or whatever it is. But then you, you look back in hindsight 10 years later, 20 years later, and you go, holy moly, if I had held those properties down, just holding it without even selling them, I would be like three or four times more well off compared to what I, I would be now. So, it's, it's almost like killing the golden goose. <laughs> I think this is a good time for me to bring up the idea that I think it's some um, old wisdom to say that you should buy and never sell. I think that was the old school way of approaching property investing and there's still some people out there who say the same like, buy, buy, buy and never sell and hold it forever and you'll be rich. But I think the truth of the matter is that in our society, the way it is today and the way, you know, it's complex and the money is complex and the borrowing is complex. I think to really be successful, you have to constantly be checking in and asking, is this property delivering me what I need now and in the future? And if you've got a property which, let's say, for example, isn't giving you cash flow or maybe is draining you of cash flow, it better perform in the future. And obviously the thing is there's no guarantees, but you can look at a piece of real estate and if you do your homework, you can actually probably work out with a high probability whether that thing is likely to do well over time. Is it, you know, is it going to be sought after? Is it in a good area? You know, are there infrastructure projects happening? Is there population growth? You know, is it perceived as a nice place to live? Um, because, you know, I think the, the days of land banking to some degree, which is what um, Ben had done, you know, it's too hard now. Real estate is too expensive and you cannot afford to put a foot wrong. But in the unfortunate likelihood that you buy something that maybe isn't a fit for you, my suggestion would be just to keep monitoring. And, you know, sometimes you've got to pull up stumps and say, I, I just can't you know, the, the, the life balance impact of holding a property just isn't right. Or you have to sometimes look at a property and say, well, you know, maybe I made a mistake with this one. And measuring opportunity cost is super important and not enough investors do that. So the selling down to fund lifestyle that, that I'm talking about is, you know, probably more for the person who has optimized their property portfolio and they're just trying to think of a way. Coming up after the break, we'll hear why you'll need more than just a calculator to work out the best properties in your portfolio to sell or keep. It's not about running the numbers through a calculator and then saying, well, that one's not performing, let's ditch it. How she lays it all out on the table to help people see the possibilities. I'm a huge believer, not so much in being prescriptive, um, but more explaining 
people to people what their options are and what the implications are. She maps out the roads that can lead you to making a hundred thousand dollars in passive income. Yeah, look, that's a really good question, and I I think there's there's two answers to that. If you were trying to get to a hundred thousand dollars in passive income, there's there's two ways to go about it. And that's next. I'm Taran Shum, and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, property investor, is your cash or equity currently earning you 1% to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a higher return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. For the first six months, Kilkani worked with Ben. They did deep analysis on what was and what wasn't working, what made sense and what didn't, and what he was personally and emotionally attached to when it came to his portfolio. It's not about running the numbers through a calculator and then saying, well, that one's not performing, let's ditch it. It's really being very holistic about you know, whether you should keep this. Is it still serving a purpose? Is it doing what it said it would do for you? Or will it do what it said it's going to do for you? Because ultimately, if you've got it in your portfolio and it's there, maybe there are some opportunities to be able to improve on it. And, and that's probably where people have become, you know, I guess we, we get caught up in day-to-day life that we forget that, okay, a property as well is not just necessarily always going to be a passive thing. You still need to actually review it regularly and keep on top of it because things can change. And I guess that's where, where you've got to have a good team around you to be able to help you monitor that because ultimately, it's like just buying stuff every day and then just chucking into a wardrobe without looking at it. And you come out at the end of, say, five or six years and go, hold on, where did I get all that stuff from? That's right. Flares aren't in anymore. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it sounds like that. that's the thing. That strategy where you buy and hold and you hold forever is an, an old adage strategy and we are, you know, in this podcast challenging that because I've also been raised to believe that as well. That's what my parents did. That's what my, um, yeah, previous friends and family have all said to me as well too. But now that I, I've learned and seen that there's alternative ways and other options and so forth, you go, man, I could basically take a step forward in a much faster time and achieve the goals I'm, I'm looking for rather than have to buy 10, 20 properties, I could do it in, in much less amount of time with less properties and less headaches as well because I, I just don't like maintenance as you probably realize that uh, I don't want to have too much on my plate. I like to be, I'm quite minimalistic but at the same time, I want to leverage up as much as I can. For Ben, he could see that one of his options was to sell down and fund lifestyle but he pretty much put a line through that because that, you know, didn't sit well with him as you pointed out. The second option that he had was keep working in some capacity to just bridge the gap. So have your property portfolio that maybe spits out a little bit of income and whatever or and then just work to bridge the gap and then hopefully over time that gap gets smaller and smaller. Um, so that's certainly an option that, you know, most people are, you know, would understand. And then the, the third option which is really, you know, where I feel that maybe I'm challenging people on their beliefs around wealth building is 
The third option that I saw is that you could divert a little bit of capital that you have into alternative opportunities that deliver really strong passive income. And so, you know, it's not to say that you couldn't, you know, go and put your money into commercial and get a slightly better yield, but I see that as all kind of permutations of optimise your your property portfolio. But, yeah, I, I, I definitely feel that, you know, people are taught to focus on capital, not income. And so I really think that, you know, you could definitely take those traditional pathways, which is sell down or just keep working till the gap is bridged. But I like the idea of that outside the box thinking of, well, you know, you and I are, you know, big believers in alternative. Like, I I just want people to understand that there are other ways. It's really good that you mentioned that. I'm also wondering, like, say, for example, let's just take Ben, for example, and I'd be curious to see what the next thing he did to do um, to, to, to get out of where he is currently in. As you mentioned, he's, he's spent 25 years building his property portfolio. He felt trapped because he was just spending a lot of his efforts and time and money to continue to service that particular portfolio firstly before even able to put money and food on the table. What has changed or what, what did you uh, sort of, um, I guess, steer him in? Which angle did you steer him into and, and what has been done differently now to be able to achieve what he wants yeah, so I'm a huge believer, not so much in being prescriptive, um, but more explaining people to people what their options are and what the implications are. So I think if you can show people, well, here's where you'll be in, in five years if you take this course of action, and here's where you'll be in five years if you take that course of action, and then, you know, like a super conservative middle of the road and slightly more aggressive, and then it's easy for them to choose. So with Ben... Um, we looked at the idea of selling down just to create some, you know, a bit a bit of breathing space. But in the end, once we did the analysis on each uh, investment property separately, what what you could actually see and what he could see was he could see his dogs, like they were just really obvious. And then he had to decide, you know, because obviously when you sell uh, an asset that has huge capital gains in it, you've got a big capital gains tax bill you know, the back end of that. So there were all those sorts of considerations. But ultimately, he um, he fixed up some of the tenancies. Um, he cleaned up his loans and um, ultimately ended up selling off three out of the 12 or so that he had and went from, I think it was about 100 minus 175,000 back up to, um, I think it put him sort of around 80,000. And then then from there, there was an ability to start, you know, accumulating small bites of a number of alternative investments. And he's got a bit of a portfolio happening now. And his income has probably pushed up to, I'm trying to remember because we were talking this week. I think it's um, it's 200K plus now. So, you know, it, it's 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 a huge transformation and it didn't happen overnight, but it's it's really about saying, I mean, in, in his mind, he was prepared to maybe put 10 to 15% of his net worth into alternatives, but it's the journey of trying to dissect, you know, w- what is your risk appetite? Like, what are you looking for? What do you really, why are you even investing? Like, what do you want? What's the outcome? And so, yeah, he's well on his way now to being where he wants to be. 
Gosh, that's like a 360 degree turnaround from minus 175 to close to 200K. That's a very, very good story, Selena. I mean, like most people just forget, I guess, ultimately at the end of the day that if you build a portfolio, you also got to consider the cash flow behind it too because yes, you know, you still got tenants that will pay for it but you still also have to cover the mortgage and the debt that's that's remaining. And at what stage do do most people and this is sort of also a question for me that I'm wondering is at what stage of the level of debt would you be comfortable to continue to hold because I mean it'd be ideal if you could have unencumbered properties and you pay down all the debt and you have a a positive cash flow property portfolio but that's not reality. Most investors I know still leverage and have mortgages like good debt to be able to continue to fund and generate income from their property portfolios. Yeah, look, leverage is definitely a super powerful tool and I'm not advocating that we hold assets unencumbered. You know, debt is what allows us to take a really small amount of capital and, you know, explode it over a big portfolio. But what I do think is that, um, you know, I think there's artistry in building a successful portfolio. In terms of how long should you hold and all of that, like I think that's a more complex and probably a personalised response. But I do think there's a lot of um, well-intentioned wealth people out there sort of selling old wisdom. Um, and the truth of the matter is if, if I was starting from scratch today, what I would be doing is buying you know, the best assets that I possibly could that were as close to cash neutral as possible. And I would I would be progressively building my portfolio until the banks told me no. And unfortunately, these days, that's much sooner than it used to be. Um, unfortunately, you know, people of my generation, Gen Xs, you know, we didn't realise at the time because we came into the workplace at a pretty bleak time and there was a lot of unemployment. But from a, an opportunity perspective, we've, we've had a great opportunity to accumulate real estate if we wanted to. The people before us had even more opportunity. But I would say, yeah, you know, anyone shouldn't be discouraged by those limitations and they should just do the best they can, put their portfolio in place. And then unfortunately, this is not the answer people want to hear, but you just got to wait for time to do some heavy lifting. You know, you just got to wait for the you know, the ratio of value to loan to just get better and better and better and better. And then at some point, probably well before retirement age, if you've started early enough, you'll have all this equity. And then you can start asking the questions around, well, how do I take a small piece of that and turn the dial towards better cash flow without having to risk my portfolio? Um, so that's the sort of quality of question that I think someone who's really looking to do well as a property investor in today's market needs to be kind of asking and thinking. And it'd be interesting also to, to ask this question is, is, as we kind of alluded at the beginning is what are the options? We've talked about the three options that are, are possible you know, based on a portfolio like what Ben had. Um, maybe delving deeper into sort of a little bit just touching on the third option which is to look at alternative strategies. What would you have have recommended or suggested I guess you can say to look into to try and generate some additional passive income because as we know and maybe actually before we even jump into talking about the passive income size, let's let's maybe give an example to the listeners. How much of a portfolio would you be able to need to be able to generate say maybe 100k a year in passive income after all expenses from a property portfolio so that way you can put things in perspective. 
Yeah, look, that's a really good question. And I, I think there's, there's two answers to that. If you were trying to get to $100,000 in passive income, there's, there's two ways to go about it. If you need that money today, like if you needed to be on a run rate of 100K today, then I think realistically in my world, and I know that you um, have access to more lucrative deals, but I would say to someone, you could, you could break up um, a million dollars capital into several buckets and generate a net return somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 13% all day long without taking on any risks, any big risks, I should say. Um, the other answer to that question would be if you have a timeline of, say, five years, you know, it's, it's, just, it's a maths problem, isn't it? It's like I want to be at 100K in, say, five years. What does my starting capital need to be and how much am I prepared to add as fuel for for that five-year block to kind of and allow my returns to compound to get where I want to go? And it could be that you only have to start with 400000 and then just add in 100 k each year for five years and then voila, you've got your 100 k income. Or maybe your outlook is, to, is 10 years and you say, well, in 10 years I want to be at 100000 in income and I've only got whatever how much now 100,000 and if i add a you know 50 to 100k every year then by year 10 i've got my my 100,000 dollar income so it's it's not that it's rocket science from a maths perspective it's more that you know there's an element of play of you know how much capital do you have how much are you prepared to risk um, how serious are you about getting there over what period of time uh, and then just marrying that up to deals that are a fit. Um, but the, the game plan and the strategy piece is, is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree. The game plan is so, so important to be able to work out what it is. But I, I guess what I was trying to um, allude to was was thinking, let's say, for example, in order to, say, generate $100,000 from, say, property as an example and knowing the the returns on property in Australia, let's say it's averaging what 5% would be even... One percent. Let's say one percent to generate a hundred thousand. You wouldn't ten million of of a capital base to be able to sustain that. Now, how many people would you know could go and and buy ten million dollars worth of property to be able to generate that kind of income? Um, I guess maybe it's a time thing, but like most people don't even. Uh, and I don't see or, or know that many people except a lot of property investors but the average Joe Blow would not be able to go, hey, and I'm going to go buy $10 million worth of property in the say next 10 years. It's not, <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's the real thing. <laughs> and here's the thing and this is where we started. We hold up this idea that if we hit a certain net worth that we will be financially free because that portfolio will generate income for us. But the big challenge in the whole world right now is there's plenty of opportunities or there's opportunities out there to build capital. There are very few that generate good income. And that's the dilemma. So saying, oh, well, I have a goal of getting to a net worth of 5 mil or I want a net worth of 10, 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 mil without the context of, well, what income stream will you derive from that? Or how hard will that capital work for you? It's it's almost meaningless because you just you hit the nail on the head. Would you rather have a net worth of ten million? Would you rather strive for a net worth of ten million, earning a one percent income stream, or 
have a net worth of one million, earning a ten percent. So it's there's no right or wrong, but it's kind of changing the lens around the question itself. Thank you to Selena Kilkani, our guest on this special episode of Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short 6 months. To register interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.